I've just come off one of the most profound conversations so far on Conversations of Inspiration. Willard Wigan, MBE, the greatest micro-sculptor there's ever been. I would say get ready with your tissues. Definitely have a notebook because Willard and Willard's mother and what she used to say to him will stay with you forever. Some of the greatest lessons I think I probably will learn has come out of this podcast. So I'm already thinking about how many times I'm going to play it over, coming from such humble beginnings with difficulties, with neurodiversity, and actually ending up having one of the most exciting, glorious lives I think I've ever heard described. And as he said, at 64, he's actually just beginning because even bigger is coming. What can I say? Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Willard. I am thrilled to meet you today because I've been a huge admirer of your, well, your work is, I don't think anyone's actually going to quite believe it. If they don't know of you, they're not going to believe what we're going to describe. So welcome to my podcast, Willard. Oh, it's a pleasure, Holly. Pleasure and an honour. So I just wanted to um, start off because we're going to talk about your life, but... You've been called the Micro Angelo. You've broken two world records and you've created the world's smallest handmade micro art in history. That's correct. Art that fits inside the eye of a needle or on the head of a pin. Now, I just had to say that to everybody so that they understood what we were going to be talking about and the phenomenon that is you. How are you feeling about being in your position right now in your life? Before I start, I just wanted to correct you a little bit. Yes. The smallest sculpture I've ever made is inside a human hair. You're right. A motorbike inside a human hair and also a sculpture of a little babe inside a human hair which is smaller than a human embryo, which can actually fit inside a human embryo. It's incredible. I'm getting to that part about the hair because all last night while I was preparing for this podcast, I sat down with my son and I explained to him, you were the only person that made him put down his phone. Normally I can never get him to put (laughs) down his phone. But when I described that, he said, Google it. I don't believe you. And I did. And so for everybody, you better be Googling this while we're speaking. Um, Let's just start because I want to go right back to the beginning, if that's okay with you, Willard. Because I know school, and we talk about school a lot on this podcast. Uh, We talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, those people who inspire us. And the collective really haven't had normal upbringings. School has never played a huge part 
in their lives. And for you, I know school wasn't a happy place. I read mm -hmm. when researching you for this podcast that the learning differences you had, autism, dyslexia, weren't recognised at the time. Mm -hmm. And that school was a very difficult time and teachers broke your confidence. Can you describe that period of your life? Well, I mean, any child before they, some children at all, when you first start school, sometimes you, lead, you start school with a, a little bit of confidence. Sometimes you have no confidence. Sometimes you have a lot of confidence. Sometimes people look forward to starting school. I look forward to starting school because I didn't know what school was going to, what it had installed for me. I just thought school was somewhere where you went and played with toys and then talked to other children and spell your name. I, I wasn't quite ready for what I was going to encounter, you see, because back in the 60s, it was common for, for teachers to humiliate children. Mm. It was almost like a, a sort of Oliver Twist yeah. mentality, but not quite as us as that, you know. So when I started school, I, I, I just tried to fit in as much as I possibly could. I, I, was, I was there, but at the same time, uh, as soon as I started school, I felt, you know, strange because I, I, I didn't feel that I really belong there mm -hmm. for some reason because uh, one of the teachers was always trying to find a reason to humiliate me. Um, I don't know why, but it's, it's a fact. It really did happen. You know, she would talk to the other children and, and introduce them to their first day at school. And um, I was you know, just, just there playing with toys at first before you start to learn the academic side of things you you know you, you, I was playing in this sand pit and just just playing around and not not feeling right it's almost as though my body was there my mind wasn't mm. when I, at first I kind of looked forward to going to school because I thought school was somewhere where you could go and play and then the harshness set in where you know, they wanted to see if you could spell your name or you could add up. And then when the, she found out I couldn't, that was a that was a reason now to make me feel humiliated. So it's quite sad that I'm having to say this, but it's so true. It's unbelievable, you know. That and then she decided to tell all the other children in the class about me, telling them because I couldn't spell my name. I, I read that she would take you around the school and use you as an example of failure. That's right. I was an exhibit of failure. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was terrible. So um, when that happened, I'll tell you what that done to me. It just made me say to myself, I don't belong. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm not accepted. So I'm not going to talk. Right. So I stopped talking because I thought... It, you don't accept me. You tell me that I am what you say I am. So therefore, I'll behave like what you say I am. So therefore, I'm not here. So I shut down completely. You see, as a kid, because of the autism, I couldn't really understand the condition. I didn't because it wasn't diagnosed. I didn't know what. Mm -hmm. I knew something was wrong, but I, I don't know what it was. I can't. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew that. Something was wrong. But at the end of the day, I know the ugly duckling turns into a swan. 
So, I, you know, I, I remember that story. But you used to run home, didn't you? And used to hide in the shed. Yeah, because, I mean, the humiliation was so bad because she used to have this, this horrible voice. Oh, could I have your attention, children? Right. Now, but I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. If you don't listen to the teacher, you become Willard. Willard is, is what happens if you don't learn to listen to your teachers and she'd hold the exercise book and say this is this is what happens look at Willard's book look how disgusting it is so all that and you get this echoing in your head it's like an echoing mm -hmm. of what she's saying so you, you hear it and then you might as well just not do anything so I just thought okay yeah I'm not going to talk you say I'm that so I'll accept that so therefore I'm going to give up completely and no wonder you ran away and ran ran and, and, and hid in this, well, hid not only inside yourself, but literally hid in a shed. And you started to actually create, is this right, a sort of fantasy world, which started by, well, where your micro-sculpturing actually started was that early on. That's what I can't believe. Well, what it, what it was, what it was, Ollie, when the opportunity came for me to run away from school, it was the best thing I ever done because, you know, my body was there, my mind wasn't, so I might as well leave take take it all away see my, my 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 left leg was in school my right leg was out so might as well get both legs and join them yeah just join <laughs> join it all together be efficient have your whole body and your whole mind in one place yeah. but you started making homes for ants this was your refuge it was your way of escaping mm -hmm. tell me about this because this is what, how old were you roughly then? I was five, five, six years old, yeah. Crikey. Whilst I'd run away from school, I, my world was insects. You know, I'd pick up a leaf and look at the veins in the leaf and stuff like that. I was always picking up small things, little, little grains of sand and dirt and looking at the dirt, looking at little insects walking around. So the opportunity come for me to run away from school, which is a great feeling. I didn't live too far from the school anyway, so that was nice. And I remember running and where I used to live there's a nice field there and ponds that are there I used to sit I remember running towards this pond and sitting by it and looking into the water and seeing all the little whirly beetles and water boatmen pond skaters you know that was a great feeling because I found solitude you know it was almost like tranquility I was like in my own little world you know then I, I carried on running I saw my house in the distance climbed over the fence hid in the shed you know, I mean, I was a little bit afraid of my mum because my mum was like the woman in Tom and Jerry, you know. See, if my mum my mom was the type of woman, if she threw a punch at you and it missed you, you'd get pneumonia after draft because she could hit that hard, you know. So I was a little bit scared of that. But, you know, my mum was a good woman anyway, but she's a disciplinarian, you know. She could turn a potato into a missile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Doesn't matter how far away you are. Like Tom and Jerry, and she'd throw it. What a description. What a brilliant description. But you, am I right in thinking you made ants shoes and hats? Yeah. How did you even start to because you know you, you didn't have microscopes you didn't have anything so how did that even manifest itself well it manifests itself because of my dog really my dog I remember I played in the garden with a dog and I bounced the ball it went over the fence next door and my dog was digging to, to try and get underneath the fence to get the ball but as he'd done that he disturbed an ant's nest and lots of ants came out of the ground so when you have autism, you believe all types of things. You know, you start thinking that ants can talk. You know, the queen ant lives in the palace. She's got a little crown on her head. And, you know, you think that, you know, all the other little 
baby ants go to school and they've got little merry-go-rounds and seesaws and swings and little hats and shoes. So my mind just went into this obsession of possession of, oh, I've got to help the ants now because they've got nowhere to live. So I found my dad's razor blade. He used to have these scarred razor blades in his little bowl upstairs. And Because in the 60s, they used to leave the door open so you could go in. My mum had gone to work anyway, so... I got this razor blade and I got a, a, a twig, put it into the razor blade and snapped a piece of razor blade off so you have this shard of razor blade in my hand, you see. It would have been detrimental for a kid of five to do that, but I just yeah. I just knew I could. And then I picked up some little splinters of wood and started to slice them and cut little grooves into them and I constructed and, you know, built, uh, you know, a whole village for ants. And I found a leaf and twisted the leaf, just like a cigar. It was a dead leaf twirl. So I got four of these leaves and twisted them, pulled fibres out of my school uniform and wrapped them up and tied up these, these, these like, it looked like ice cream combs, four of them. And I cut out little arch windows and, you know, made a little a bridge. And that was a palace for the Queen, you know. So I'd found a little piece of cardboard and I punched little holes in the cardboard and wedged all these little houses in. I made a whole village for ants. And when I did that, I was so happy because I kept thinking, all oh, the ants are going to move in and, you know, they're going to have to pay me some rent. <laughs> but, you know, on a serious note. You're I, an ant landlord. Yeah, not really. I just thought, you know, the ants are, are going to be happy yeah, now. you know, happy and, and, and safe. And, yeah, and then I got carried away, started making furniture tables and chairs, little seesaws, merry-go-rounds for the ants. You know, so I've got my mum's needle and punched little holes in things and I just sort of wedged them all together. I didn't know it was a skill. I didn't think it was anything special at all, you know. When I realised what I'd done is when one of the kids next door seen it, she looked over the fence and, you know, and then all I heard was, <gasps> wow, and I heard her say, that is the bestest now, somebody's just told me now that I'm the bestest. But, you know, as a kid, the way a child would say, that's the best. Yes. So my, it's, it's almost like this surge of pride, pride and, and encouragement. And it's like, oh, you just tell me I'm the bestest. Probably hadn't heard that before. Yeah, then she went out in the garden and told her mum. And she was mum, have a look at this, mum, 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 look up, look up, Willard. Well, then they wouldn't call you Willard, they call you the coloured boy, unfortunately. That's right. A, that's what they used to do. Oh, look what the coloured boy's done. Look, look, look. And mum came down the garden, her mum, and looked over the fence and she went, oh, Wow, wow, oh my goodness me. Terence called the son Terence, who's a good friend of mine. You know, he, so he came and had a look and he went, oh, Wow, that's amazing. And then she called her husband, Bob, and then he came and had a look and he was like, Oh my God, that is amazing. And now they're all telling me I'm good. And there's a, the lady over the, the other lady over the other fence, she, came around and had a look and he was like, and I could hear him saying, that's amazing. And then now they've made a fantastic mistake <laughs> because now they're going to turn me into something possessed. They've just told me I'm good because, that, because now it's like telling a rabbit that he's got carrots for the rest of his life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm like, you've just told me. You've just felt something that you had never experienced. Tell me, can I ask you something? You showed your mum. So you've got everyone looking over the fence. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We've got the bestest coming on and we've got this whole thing. I'm, I'm interested because 
you know, she was, yes, she was the Tom and Jerry mum. Yeah. But I know that you speak about her and some of the things that she said to you about your skill was really profound, actually. Tell me about that because she was a big inspiration for you. But she she really made you realise this could be more and almost didn't let you rest on your laurels. Didn't like go, okay, that, that's, that's fine. Stay at this stage. She pushed you, didn't she? When my mother seen what I've done, you know, after all the commotion and all the neighbours looking, my mum came home from work. She went to school to collect me and found out I wasn't there, came back home. And then she found out that I was in the garden and they could see all the neighbours looking at what I'd done. Then, you know, my mother was coming to give me some discipline. But then I got rescued by my neighbour. And then my neighbours showed her what I'd made. And my mum took this deep breath and then went quiet. And then she said, where do you get that from? I told her I made it. And she was stunned into silence for a little bit because I thought she was going to throw it in a bin or something and say, what are you doing? You should be at school. Stop making these, these little things. So she took it in the house, put it down on the table and looked at me and said, you make that? And I said, yeah. She went, make them smaller and them get bigger. <laughs> she said, you can't read, you can't write, so you better make small things. So she's telling me now that what I've made is amazing. And she said to me, she's never seen anything like that. And she says, that's what you're going to do. So then, now my mum told me I'm good. She gave me a little hug and a kiss. And so now it's like more yeah. energy, more. Yeah. See, my mum just told me that my sisters and my brothers came and they was all telling me I was good. And, and then it's like, and the girl next door, she was talking, going out in the street, talking to kids. And so I got all excited. And so I got a toothpick and I carved all the Beatrix Potter characters on a toothpick. Then I, I showed it her. And then she... She went, and I showed my mum, and my mum looked at me and said, it's too big, it's not small enough. So I remember looking at my mum, so I thought, right, so on the point of the toothpick, I carved a little bird and I showed it, and she went, too big. So I thought, well, why does she keep telling me that? I didn't know that the fact that she was telling me that to, to encourage me to go smaller, because she told me the smaller my work, the bigger my name, you know? It was obviously not easy for you in the you know, a way that I can't empathise with you because I've never experienced it. But it's sounding like this was a tough upbringing. But there was something that your mum, you know, she didn't tell you, you better get back to school. That is what you've got to do. She knew that you were special in the truest sense. And she basically loved you enough to say, I am going to be that person who pushes you to the best that you're going to be which is actually a very forward-thinking way because she was basically setting you up for life. That's correct. That she knew was not going to be the standard life other people might experience, that she knew that you're going to need to be different. And in that way, I've got to be that tough one who pushes you even further. That is so correct. You've hit the nail, well, the hammer on the pinhead. <laughs> that is what you call <laughs> pinpoint accuracy in what my mother would do. Because my mother... Um, knew I was struggling with, 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 with spelling and reading. So when she saw what I, what I could do, she just thought, right, you know, I'm going to keep telling you to do that. I remember she said something to me that resonates in my mind, she'd say. 
sometimes people say lots of words and don't mean nothing. And some people say very little words and mean everything. So she say, so if I tell you to make little sculptures, they'll say much more than when somebody makes something big. So make them real small and make them so people can't see. And you'll see how big small will become. She had foresight. I mean, I think about you as that small child. I know that you basically spent this huge amount of time in your childhood growing confidence, spending time carving these tiny sculptures. You must have had such patience as a child. And I remember reading a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, and he talks about how 10,000 hours makes you become a master of what you do. Correct. Would you say you agree? Like basically over and over again, and she's saying smaller, smaller, smaller. Repetition. And you've got to do it. Repetition. Yeah. Do you think that is what has, I mean, and we, you know, how old are you now? I'm 64. 64. You were five when this started. Yeah. This is a lifetime. I never stopped, Holly. I am, you see, I tell, my mum told me, she says, that's all you can do. Mm. That is all you can do, which is not the fact now, but, but I can do a, a lot more things now. I can articulate, I can speak well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when she told me that, that's, you can't do nothing else. Mm. I remember I used to tell myself in my head when I was doing something, I used to say, I'm, I'm going to operate on, on this, this little girl. And if I don't fix it, she's going to die. Mm. And, and I just tell myself I'm, I'm performing an operation and, and I just, keep on doing it it mm. was it was just like this repetition of every evening every morning all the time non-stop 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 I just wouldn't stop because I felt as though my life depended upon it it was almost so yeah my life depends on this yeah so because I lost me I lost me and then I found me again but I found me again in the right place whereas I decided to bring the small world into the big world because we all start small everything starts small we all we're made up of atoms anyway when before we were born we're like little you yeah. know fetuses inside a you know an embryo you know there's antibodies inside our bodies you know look at the world now you've got these microchips all this you know micro technology yeah you know what i mean it's like if somebody doesn't say anything we automatically think they've got nothing to say so my inspiration is underestimation because underestimation is a great inspiration because if you look at an ant, an ant small in stature, but immense in strength, the strongest animal on the planet, pound for pound. A bee sting is tiny, but it really hurts. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. I mean, my mum would say things that were just like, my dad was, was complaining about some lamb once because she'd made him some lamb and he, she made it quite bland. She'd make it too spicy. And my dad was complaining and saying, I don't, I don't like what you've done. I don't like what you've done. And I, don't make my lamb like this. Don't make my lamb like this. And arguing. And my mum said, if you carry on, you're going to have to remind me to love you. <laughs> 
she's had such an influence already on me and we've only been a few minutes in this podcast. But I mean, so what it must have been to grow up with her. So listen, I'm curious to know whether you think that your autism and dyslexia have in a way become your USP, your unique selling point. Because I say this because I mentioned a lot of founders and I would say the majority that I interview have had non-conventional starts not being great at school, a huge percentage of them dyslexic. I talked to a few of my friends who have neurodiverse children worried about their future because, of course, the school is a very cookie-cutter establishment, you know. I'm interested to know if you found these conditions basically are your superpowers. Autism is a blessing in disguise, you see. I, I call it a learning difference. I don't, you know... I don't see it as an obstacle. I see it as an enhancement, mm. you know, because it, it, it's like a, um, my mum would say to me, the diamond is in the dustbin. That's <laughs> what she used to say. And I say, what do you mean by that? She say, because society, they have a habit of throwing the best away until somebody uncovers it and realises they threw a diamond away. Yeah. Instead, and then they empty the bin and see that there's a diamond, you see? Because I know how things work. Because sometimes the best comes from less or from where you least expect. Mm. You see what I mean? You, you may see something and then go past it. Yeah. And then go back and have a look and go, oh, my God, I didn't know that was there. Mm. I didn't expect to see that there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, if you can go into some of the remote parts of Brazil, into like the places where there's lots of trouble and whatever, whatever. And if you go in there and seek it out, you'll see the real diamond because there are from deprived areas. And, you know, you'll see people who have been uh, hidden away and, and then all of a sudden they've been uncovered and you go... Where, 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 I didn't know you. Where, you, where are you from? Oh, I'm from uh, the Prevelos. I'm from the Prevelos. It's supposed to be terrible there. Yes, but the diamond's in the dustbin. You see what I mean? So yeah. uh, uh, I've seen people that have been underestimated. Mm. You see what I mean? If you look at a Shaolin monk, he's very small, but he's an immense fighter. You see what I mean? It's like... There's an old saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. So we're always trying to accept something because we can see it. But what about something you can't see? There's a saying, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. So, you know, that depicts me for who I am. I am a, a testimony of what can be achieved from the word nothing. The word nothing doesn't exist because there's always something you can't say nothing. If you go into an empty room and someone's, if you say to someone, what's in that room? Oh, nothing. Of course there's something in there. There's lots of little insects in there. There's Mrs. Dustmite and all the family are probably in there. <laughs> They're probably having a little party under the carpet, you know what I mean? Willard, tell me, um, for parents that might be listening and maybe have children whose you know, brains are wired differently, what would you say to them about embracing the gift? Encouragement and covering it and see what's there, you see, because sometimes you have to have a look, you see. You have to find out who they really are. And sometimes 
people go into themselves. My mum would say to me, you are an invisible key that can't be seen, but you can open a door bigger than Mount Everest with a tiny key. So what it is, you have to persevere and encourage that child, if that child has a, has a, a behaviour pattern and you can uh, detect that they have a, a form of autism, the ugly duckling will turn into a swan. But you, as a parent, have to sit on the egg and then let the talent emerge into the glory. You see what I mean? I do, actually. I do. I mean, I, I was reading something you wrote. You said, because I wanted to get people to understand that there are people out there with learning differences who have extreme, miraculous and inexplicable gifts. That's correct. That's correct. And I just thought this is just something that, you know, we as a society, I think you would agree, has moved on a lot, Willard, since you were a child. Okay, during the 60s, right, uh, there was a lot of ignorance, you see. They used to put dunce hats on people's heads. Yeah. Call them dunces. Now, the listeners who are listening to this, you'll be able to familiarise yourself with me because you, you are people who have, who have made it really big in business. You've become the swan from the ugly duckling. You have your massive chain of solicitors you're probably a, an architect become fashion designers that become all types of greatness and it just it just it emerges from somewhere that can't explain where it's come from mm -hmm. how do you manage to do that did you go to college did you go to university no i just did it but i remember you at school and you couldn't spell you couldn't do this you couldn't do that that's underestimation mm -hmm. you see and, and what it is it's almost as though a you, you, you have to defend yourself. It's like a defence system with having to find something to prove to people that you are not what they think you are. You're more than that. You find this extreme ability because you can talk and talk and talk. That don't work. So you have to show them what you're capable of. You can get revenge by success yes and some sometimes people have i have got uh, a quality qualification in i wouldn't say revenge in success i have a qualification <laughs> in success I so know. so you know. a qualification in revenge no i mean success you know it's like that in brackets you know just yeah. a little bit of uh yeah, yeah so for everybody who underestimated me i am now here that's right I, I, i'm here you know what i mean i'm the diamond that was in the dustbin now the facets on my diamond is not like any other diamond in the world because mm. my mother cut it so i am now shining but at the same time i want to shine on other children so that they can see that they're also a diamond that's in the dustbin ready to come out because of the underestimation of humanity. Humanity always underestimate. I mean, I was listening to Tyson Fury and he went through so much. You know, he went through a, a, a mental health. You know, he was, he was down. Mm. But he emerged from a dark place where then no one expected him to come back from. And he became world champion. 
And, you know, and Tyson Fury is a great inspiration to anyone who feels they can't achieve in life. Yeah. You know, when someone, a voice in their head telling them to commit suicide and then all of a sudden they say, no. So what I'm trying to say to you is autism, right, can make people feel as though they don't, they don't exist, they're, they're not worthy, that there's no significance about them. You know, so they're just a leaf in a cul-de-sac. So your leaf being mm. blown around in a cul-de-sac. So there's no direction. Or, you know, it's like a quicksand of despair. So you're, you're sinking, but there's nothing to grab onto to pull yourself up. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Hannah Russell, co-founder of Mags Creative and the co-host, about why podcasts are a fundamental part of our future. In your expert opinion, if we just start from the beginning, I mentioned about the stats, but outside of that, why are podcasts part of our future and quite an important part of our future? I think you can look at it from two points of view. So I think from a listener point of view, we've been experiencing screen fatigue. So what was happening three years ago, I think, was the real rumblings of people saying, you know what, I have looked at a screen for a long time. And there was this kind of starting of a movement, I think, of thinking, what's behind it all? What's behind the really perfect Insta-posed kind of things? And people starting to talk about Insta-reality and the shots of the messy houses behind the very beautiful looking houses, which I won't show you mine today because I'm actually basically stood in a cupboard. But anyway, I think that was sort of starting three years ago. And I think the point we're at now is that people are really hungry for authenticity and really hungry for things that genuinely connect people. So when you're looking at an Instagram picture or you're scrolling or you're you're doing your work and you're on Zoom and you, you see a fraction of people's lives, when you listen to a podcast, you genuinely listen to what that person has to say because you're not distracted really by what they look like. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram. You can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You've heard this probably so many times, but Willard, you're probably one of the most articulate voices I've had on this podcast. Thank you. you know, very I, I'm, much, I'm actually moved to tears already. And normally I cry at the end of these things, Willard. Normally not in the middle. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, you have a way, and I know everyone listening, they've got really creative brains who are listening, and you are describing the analogies you're using. I am just like literally full already. And we've got some more of this podcast to go. But I just wanted to say that to you. Like I've never interviewed anybody like you. Thank you, Holly. I really appreciate that. 
So I, I also, uh, when, you know, I was thinking about this and, you know, I was remembering reading about Greta Thunberg and she said, I have Asperger's and that means I'm sometimes a bit different from the norm. And given the right circumstances, being different is a superpower. And it's really a brilliant, brilliant lesson for all of us to understand mm-hmm. more about who we are, how we tick, finding our diamond, like you said, and I think I'll never forget this, the diamond in the dustbin. But tell me, what was the moment for you? Because I know you were creating sculptures throughout your 20s whilst working, you did lots of different jobs, Mm -hmm. none of them which gave you that sense of purpose that you felt during your sculptures. But what was that turning point and change for you? Well, see, the turning point for me was I had something to prove, you see. Having a, a learning differences, you believe that when you leave school, the only thing you can do is work in a factory. Mm-hmm. So all I thought about was, when I leave school, I'll work in a factory, but I'll earn some money. Mm-hmm. I'm still alive. I, I was drilling holes in bits of metal, mm-hmm. you know, throwing them in a container. They call it piecework. The more you do, the more you, you earn, you know. So one thing I thought about was one thing I thought, well, number one, I'm alive. Number two, I have a dog, which I like the dog. I have a dog. And number three, there's lots of insects in the garden that I can look at. Number four, my mum makes nice apple crumble. (laughs) So I was happy with those simple things. And I can listen to some music Mm -hmm. because I like Tamla Motown. You know, I was into Motown stuff and... You know, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Uh, and also, and the main one, I have a skill to sculpt. So when I first worked in the factory, when I first left school, left school with no qualifications, I remember the teacher says to me, oh, you can empty my bin any time, Willard. Like that. So I never said anything at all. I'll never forget the teacher that said that. I won't mention any names, but I never said anything at all, you see, because the grain of sand was going to be thrown into the sea and a tidal wave of success was going to come from that grain of sand. <laughs> so I thought, OK. Yeah, I'll just a, show you. I ain't saying a word, right? So I knew I couldn't go to university or college because I couldn't spell, couldn't write. So I am now working in a factory. And I used to earn money and, I, you know, of course, wages, give my mother housekeeping money. And my mother was, she was happy that I was doing something. I wasn't out on the streets running riot, doing anything like that. Even though where I live, people used to fight a lot. Kids used to fight a lot. You know, it's part of their DNA, you know, mm-hmm. in the black country. That was, people used to fight. They used to like fighting. Kids used to look at your socks and say, yeah, I've got red socks on. Do you want to scrap? You know, if you had red socks on, they'd have a fight with you. Wanted a fight. If you had green socks on, say, oh, you got green socks. Well, I've got red socks. Why you got green socks on? Want a fight? And then have a fight and shake hands afterwards and you become best of friends. Oh, God. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, I've got the same socks as me. So we get on, you know what I mean? Anyone listening to this podcast will, will be familiar with what I'm trying to say. Because yeah. that's what they used to do. So me as a kid growing up, I had some good friends who used to hang out. But when I showed them what I could do, they'd be like, oh, wow, 
No, I said, you know, carve little things and show them, you know, look at that, look at that. And they'd be like, their eyes would be popping open and they'd go and tell their friends that they will have a look. And then they said to me, one, one guy says, yeah, I'm going to be famous, yeah, man. And I said, my mum told me that. And I remember this girl, my first girlfriend, I showed it her and she, she started to cry. She said, how did you make that? That's busting. That's brilliant, that is. You're great. And I said, you're going to be greater when you get older. And I'm like, because she's an attractive girl, you see. So I thought <laughs> she told me I'm going to be great. When I, and I'm really happy, you know, skipping down the road with a sweet. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> she told me. So that was a great encouragement, you see. So I used to make things for her, you know, and, and give it, mm -hmm. you know. But um, so I was, I was finding me. I was on a journey. As kids, we would go to clubs and dance, you know, because all, all I cared about was being alive. Yeah. I'm alive, that's it. So I can't read, but I'm alive. My mother makes nice apple crumble. I'm good. I'm happy. <laughs> so, Can I ask one of your sculptures, though? So not only was your girlfriend very impressed with you, but also so was the Birmingham Mail, because they picked up, didn't they, your Adam and Eve on a cocktail stick? Yeah, well, I, I, can, I can fast forward, you know, my... My, my my journey a little bit and get to the stage where I said to myself, when well, my mother told me, she said, I reached age, after going through my teenage years and having a dance and, you know, and going to clubs and discos and all that stuff with my afro and, you know, dancing to like uh, Tavares, Evan Must Be Missing an Angel and, you know, all those songs and Sounds of Philadelphia and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I got, got past, past that stage and I, I became a, a, a dancer because I, 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 I was the first uh, robotic dancer in the whole of the UK, you know. I was, oh, really? You were doing all that? The yeah. listeners can't see, but I am actually looking at the first robotic dancer dancing. Yeah. And I was body like... popping like 1976 and all that, you know. I was doing all that stuff. I used to watch Soul Train and I became... So I became known for my dancing, you know, and... And, I, you know, people used to... I started dancing for money. I was making money, you know? And my mum says, how long are you going to dance for? And I says, but what you make will dance so much longer. So don't dance no more. Show the world what you can do. Gosh, this woman was wise. So I, I thought, OK. So I decided one day that I'm, I'm going to have to do something about it. So I decided to go for a walk into the city centre of Birmingham. And by the time I'd left home then, you see, I was living in Birmingham. So I, I honoured my mother. I said to my mother, I'm going to honour your words. I'm going to do something. So I walked into the city centre of Birmingham just for a walk. And I walked down Corporation Street. It's in Birmingham. And across the road from there, there's a law course. And then there's a, on the other side of the road, there was a shop called Pond's Tools. And it, it was a shop that sold all types of DIY and wood carving tools and drills and, you know, chainsaws and just everything that people need. So I, I walked in and there was a bench there. And on the top of the bench, there was a block of wood, the wood carving tools all the way around this piece of wood. So I kept saying, it's block of wood. And this gentleman come round the corner by the name of Mr. Pond, who we became good friends. And, and he went, 
hello, dear boy. He said a voice like that. Hello, dear boy. Uh, all right. He says, why do you keep staring at that, staring at that bit of wood? And I went, because I can see William Shakespeare's head. Oh, really? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you a woodcarver? I said, I'm not a woodcarver, but I can certainly carve that piece of wood. And I went, let me carve something on that piece of wood. Let me do a carving on that piece of wood. And he went, well, I don't know who you are, you know. What's your name? I said, my name's Willard Wigan. He went, I've never heard of you. I don't know who you are. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a good suggestion, but... Do you, do, you, do you have a portfolio? And I, I said, my name's Will again. and if you let me carve that piece of wood, you'll know who I am when I finish it. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and then he went, Mr Pond, God bless his soul, he's not around now. And then he went, I don't know what you do. And I went, in my pocket, I had a carving of all the Beatrix Potter characters carved on a toothpick, an updated version, more detailed. I showed it to him, he went, bloody hell, oh my God. That word comes out a lot. Then he called his wife, Kay, come and have a look at this. And Kay came and had a look. And Kay went, oh my goodness. And she called somebody else and some of the other staff, come and have a look at this. I was like, what I could do was, oh my God. And then he put it, gave me back and he went, shut one eye. Do you really do that, Willard? And I said, yes. And he went, how do I know you did it? And I went, give me a scalpel blade. And he went, gave me, and I said, I've got a splinter of wood here. And I carved a little, and he went, oh, and I said, well, okay, let me carve Shakespeare on that piece of wood, and I will bring endorsement to the tools, and I will become an artist in residence for two weeks, promoting your tools and promoting your shop. And the law courts over the road, people can come past and see this piece of wood turn into a shape of Shakespeare. And he went, that's that's a good idea. When do you want to start? And it's about 10 o'clock. And I says, now, let's do it now. (laughs) And he went, but it's it's not promoted or anything. I mean, I said, look, forget about the promotion. There's no time like the present. Put that bench outside, put the wood carving tools outside, give me the mallet and the chisels and watch. And his wife said, let him do it because that piece of wood, I'm sick of the sight of it. I've been looking at it for about two years. (laughs) I'm sick of it. Let him do it. And my mum used to say one thing to me, women rule the world, men think they do. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'll testify to that. Yes, women rule the world, men think they do. So in the end, Mr. Pond went, well, 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 see, these tools cost money, you know? And I went, by the time I finish with the Shakespeare, these tools will be easy to to afford because somebody's going to buy this piece of wood when they see what I do with it. And he went, well, go on then. I said, give me some overalls. He gave me some overalls. I said, watch. I started chipping away. Then all of a sudden people started walking past the shop, Mm. gathering around. Oh, that's fantastic. We haven't seen anything like that. About time we saw something like this. Nice to see a bit of activity and people creating something. That's really nice. Nice bit of craft going on. 
what are you making? I said, um, oh, I can't tell you till I've finished. Cut a long story short, that, you know, four hours or so. A shape started to come, because I wanted to make it last, you see, so yes. I was chipping away. Then all of a sudden, this woman came across the road and says, is that William? It looks a bit like William Shakespeare to me. And I says, yeah, it is. And she says, if it is, can I commission it? I says, it is Shakespeare, but I need to see what it looks like when it's finished. And I says, says I, must, I mean, I don't know what it's going to look like because I haven't seen it, but it looks like it's going to be quite spectacular. And I says, yeah, OK. So I carried on for another three, three hours, you know, chipping away. I mean, the next day, sorry, she come yeah. back every now and she says, wow, I'd like to commission that. How much? Oh, 1500 Oh, no problem. I shall write you a check. <laughs> chip, 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 chip. chip. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, wow, Mr. Pond. I said, Dave. Okay, so he, he went, kind of wiped his eyes away a little bit, bit of a teardrop. And he says, you are incredible. And I says, so that was like, mm-hmm. more... Thank Price, you so yeah. thank you so much. So now you see what it is. I've been people are telling me I'm good now. Then all of a sudden, a gentleman came down the road up uh, to be a journalist, and he says, "My name is uh, Dave Burner. I'm a journalist. I'd like to uh, do a story on you because people keep coming up and telling me about this man doing some wood carving, and I'm like." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you start? This is amazing. It's nice to see this type of thing going on. And I'm like, yeah, yeah okay, if you want a story, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely uh, participate in that. And he, and he says, when did you start? What did you start doing? Mm. Showed him Adam and Eve on a toothpick. And he was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, told them the whole story, went in the papers. Then I had calls people wanted me to commission commission me to make little toothpick stuff and how old were you at that point at the time i was about 28 at the time because right yeah the jigsaw puzzle was there but there was just that missing bit mm-hmm. and the jigsaw puzzle the bit that's supposed to go in the middle was me so i put me in the middle and completed the jigsaw puzzle you see yeah. So then people started to contact me. Oh, could you carve me this? Could you carve me that? Could you do this? Then I had a call from a lady from the centre called the Ar- Arcadian Centre in Birmingham, which is like a, a new complex. They had empty shops, and she said, oh, we have empty shops here. We'd like you to be artists in residence. Would you like that? And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. She says, OK, come and have a look at the shop then. It was very American, the way she said it. She went, yeah, come and have a look at the shop. Do you want to go in? Let's do it now. And I'm like... Brilliant. <laughs> really? She said, yeah, just do it. Get it. Get everything in. Get it all in. Get all your work in there and let's get a bench, do some wood carvings and, you know, and we'll do some promotion about you. We'll do it. So Mr. Pond helped make a bench for me, took it down to the Arcadian Centre. Mr. Pond says, go and show the world what you can do. So now I'm in this shop now. I knew a gentleman by the name of Johnny Glover who worked at Sutton Park, Sutton Cofield Park. He was a tree surgeon. So I went, I went to, to him and, I, and a friend of mine took me up there with a van and I got lots of wood, elm, lime, oak, walnut. So I had these big chunks of wood. I was carving things, carving things away, carving ballet shoes and carving uh, Florence Nightingale and people coming in and saying, oh, could you carve my dog? Could you carve my cat? Could oh, you carve? goodness. I became 
a wood carver. And I said to my mum, 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 look, 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 Mum, look what I'm doing now. My mum went, too big. I'm not interested. I said, Mum, look, I'm earning some money. And I'd give my mum some money. She'd just go, stuff it down a bra. Thank you. But it's too big. And I'm like, oh, Oh, I won't say yeah. anything again. So yeah. I went back. At the time, I didn't have any furniture in my flat. I was living in a flat like City Road in Birmingham. So then, all of a sudden, people started talking about me. And then, then before I knew it, I wanted to get some more wood. So I went to Licky Hills and I heard a tapping, someone tapping away. And I looked and I saw this man doing a big wood carving. And I went, that's good, that is. Fantastic. It says, oh, I'm just carving this. The, the council commissioned me to do this, called Spirits of the Woods. And he said, oh, that's fantastic. He says, I'll do a bit of that. And he says, what's your name? He says, my name's Willard Wigan. He went, I read about you. I read about you in the newspaper. And then he says, I says, you know something, Graham? If me and you collaborated together, we could make something really happen. His name's Graham Jones, woodcarver. Amazing. So me and him got together. We collaborated together. We set up a wood carving business. Bang! It became massive. BBC came to film us. At the time, I never really showed him too much of the little stuff. Mm. And that was the ugly duckling. Yes. Ready to emerge into the swan. It was just waiting for that moment. Right. Then all of a sudden, yeah. this gentleman came in. And at the time, Edward and Sophie were getting married. And it was David Burner from Cater's News came in and says, Edward and Sophie are getting married. Could you make something to commemorate the wedding? And I says, yeah, I can do that. So I got a match and I carved Edward and Sophie on a match and I called it the perfect match. Genius. So that went out in all the papers, went out in The Guardian, The Sun, The Mirror. and The Guardian called me the Microangelo and, and then bang, bang, bang. Yeah. So I had a, it was in The Sun, Johnny Vaughan, rang me up and well they contacted me they sent their researchers to, to meet me and said oh, they want you on a big breakfast show I'm like wow it was like the grain of sand was thrown into the sea the tidal wave was coming so then before I knew it I'm on the big breakfast show they sent a limousine to pick me up take me down the big breakfast show I met Johnny Vaughan Johnny Vaughan says I read your story in the sun this is amazing the most fascinating thing I've ever seen I'd like I want to know more about you anyway I'll talk to the other guess you know and then I'll, I'll come back to you and then he came back again and he says how did you start just in the in the green room and I said I started making smaller stuff than this and I said like what and I showed him the Statue of Liberty in the eye of a needle and he was eating something at the time and he went <coughs> and it came out of his mouth and excuse me I, I can't wait till you get on the show and talk about it so I got on the show you know and I, I gave him a story about my life and stuff like that and then he says, that sculpture that you did of Edward and Sophie, that's amazing, I showed it them. I think it was given to them, or I don't know where that went. And then I said, but Johnny, that is not my smallest stuff. Because what I'd done, I kept quiet and I bought a microscope. The ugly duckling was turning into the swan. So then I took out the Statue of Liberty in the eye of a needle. <gasps> wow, the whole place went crazy. You know, in the big breakfast show, there's like, this is amazing. Then I had a call after the show, I had a call from a, a, a gentleman in Jersey by the name of Alan Devy, a multimillionaire, and another guy by the name of Russell Merridge and Mike Watts from Bath. And listen to this they're about to open an exhibition 
in the city of Bath called the Impossible Micro World. No. That's correct. They were going to exhibit <laughs> a guy from Spain by the name of Manuel Lusa, who makes small sculptures. You know, I'm not the only micro artist in the world. Of course I'm not. Mm-hmm. They collaborated, me and him, together. So what they'd done, he flew me over to Jersey, to Montpellier, went to his house, great, beautiful house, swimming pool, beautiful crystal chandeliers, and I'm, I'm looking around. And he shook my hand, he says, Willard, I just couldn't wait to meet you. I'm going to invest one million pound in you mm. to open this exhibition called the Impossible Microworld. So to cut the story short, they've got this building in Monmouth Street, the city of Bath, opposite the Theatre Royal, and they, they uh, gutted it all out and made it really nice. They bought lots of microscopes and magnifying lenses and, and called it the, the Impossible Microworld. And it opened up and it became a massive success. The opening day, Lionel Blair came to open it because Lionel Blair loved the miniatures, you see. So I met up with Lionel Blair and he's like, oh, darling, darling, your work is so fascinating. It's like almost like a, some kind of fantasy, unbelievable, darling, you know, all that stuff. I, I don't believe how this can be done. And it was a great feeling, Lionel Blair, and, you know. And he was like, here I am. And then... It won Specialist Museum of the Year. Lots of people started to come through and I started to talk to them about the work and stuff and how I did it and all that. And I was selling brochures, I was signing brochures. And then before I knew it, I had an offer to go to Covent Garden. I did an exhibition with uh, John Snook, uh, Mr Snook, they called him. They had a shop called Snook's City of Bath, like a, 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 a toy shop that sold wooden toys, traditional wooden toys. And, mm-hmm. and we did that at Covent Garden and that became massive you know and then i had more newspapers came the sun the guardian then i had a richard and judy called me because <laughs> i did a bit in the observer then I had a call from richard and judy i wanted to go on the show and and i was on the richard and judy show and then i said to my mom you know my mom looked at me and said i told you yeah oh my so then after that more things kept coming. Gory Honeyford show. I was on uh, Brute Peter. And, and it was like the, the world was seen just how big a grain of sand is. Just how big it is. And then it, and the glory came. And then all of a sudden, David Lloyd came along and decided to invest a lot of money. 11 million. Wow. He said, I want to tour you to America. I started touring the UK first. And then things started happening. My mum had passed away, but life goes on. So I carried on, but I still remember everything. And then, before I knew it, I had email letters from the Queen. You've got some serious fans, haven't you? Then I wanting to honour me with, it, with it, an MBE. Yeah. Thinking, so oh, now, yes, your MBE, I so, mean. So now I'm, like, honoured with an MBE. So I remember when I met up with David Lloyd, I signed a contract with him. We did some great stuff together and I wasn't thinking about the money. I didn't care about the money. It was what I was achieving through my skill. I wasn't thinking about that Mm. because money's not my God. I wasn't thinking. My life started to change completely. And then I remember going to Buckingham Palace for the first time and you see the gates and the red carpet. I looked through the gates. I saw Rod Stewart and Penny Lancaster and Ricky Hatton and quite a few stars. I remember walking down the red carpet and I said to that teacher in my head, thank you very much. 
because I am now a product of what you created. Mm. You made me succeed because you told me I was nothing. So here I am today. So through your negative thoughts, I become the diamond. Mm. And the diamond is a lot bigger than the one that was found in the dustbin (laughs) because I am now the greatest micro-artist of all time. And when I met Prince Charles, Prince Charles said to me, I find this very difficult to comprehend. How does one make something so small that's touched so many people in the world? Your work is incredible. And shook my hand for a long time. My hands has been shook like that. (laughs) Then after that, then I had another letter from an anonymous person who commissioned me to do, during the Diamond Jubilee, for me to make a crown for the Queen. So I made a microscopic crown in 24 karat gold, constructed and built it in, made little diamonds and little jewels on a pinhead. And I got a letter from the Queen sent to Buckingham Palace saying I was going to make this crown. The Queen said, I will be delighted to receive something so small and so beautiful. Wow. And then I was invited to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen. With a microscope, yeah. with a pinhead, and on top of that pinhead was the carnation crown. And I remember walking through the courtyard into the reception area and met the Queen's, Queen's Secretary. Her Majesty will be out in a minute. Her Majesty came, looked at it, looked through the microscope and said, I've never had something so small that was so beautiful. Thank you very much. How does one make something so small? And I told her a little bit about it, and then she had to go. And then I I walked off, and I says, if this is a dream, don't wake me up. (laughs) If this is a dream, I even spoke to my alarm clock. If it's a dream, don't go off. (laughs) What happened to me then was I was now showing the world Mm -hmm. how big nothing became. And then I became the greatest micro-artist of all time. Then I had a programme all about me called The World's Tiniest Masterpiece, which I that won an award. And I was on stage talking about my life and what made me do it. And I'm now elevated so much, but at the same time, I'm very humble. Yeah. And I'm here to, to inspire children who come from the same background. Now, me and Sandy Toxif are going to be doing a programme on TV called The Big Tiny Challenge. People that make dolls' houses, there's 10 contestants and dolls' furniture and all little things like that. Oh, amazing. So I'm going to be the judge, you see. Oh, how incredible. I'm going to be the judge. So I'm going away to Exeter for 16 days to rehearse, to be filmed, and I'm going to be the judge on the panel. So if someone makes a little tiny little house, you know, dolls' house and furniture, I'd probably say to them, if I was one of the borrowers, I think I'd move into that house. So I think your work is tremendous. It's just going to be unbelievable. Yeah. So, so my, my, my world has now changed completely. I'm thinking that everyone has heard this story and literally whatever they're doing, normally lots of people work and create while listening to this podcast. So they're in their work studios or things. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. everyone's just down their tools just mm-hmm. now because they mm-hmm. can't cope with this story. Mm. I've read that you go into almost like a meditative state when you're creating what you create because 
There is such a skill that I think we're all trying to get our heads around actually how you do it. I know that some of your work can take you up to seven weeks, that you actually have to calm your body down. Am I right in saying that you were making Alice in Wonderland and you inhaled her? That's correct. I inhaled Alice. That is yeah, a you true story. I don't think anyone on the planet's ever said that. But you <laughs> could say that. But you in, inhaled her because basically it's, it's actually a whole body experience that goes on as you create this. So can you just tell us, how do you actually do this? Is it with surgical blades? How does how do you actually create your masterpieces? In order to create the tool, the, the sculptures, you have to make the tools because you can't buy tools small enough to do it. Right. So what I what I do, I have a friend, Mike, Mr. Meeks, is a clock maker and jewelry stuff. He does all types of stuff, and he has got all these little diamonds, and he, he gives me stuff if I need stuff. And I put the diamonds on a little anvil and I hit it with a hammer, bang. And underneath the microscope, I brush them off onto a little black card. And then I can seek out the sharpest piece. They look like little Stone Age, oh, yes. Stone Age flints, but they're very sharp. Now, I have to attach them into the, into the end of a very small hypodermic needle. A friend of mine is a, a surgeon. So he gave me these very tiny line needles and I put them into the point. And I'll squeeze the end together just to hold them in place. So it's like a microscopic microscopic scalpel blade. My goodness. So I cut the, the needle off and push that into the end of a toothpick. And so I've got an angle to hold. And I'll start slicing very gently. So what I did, for instance, the Last Supper, how I, just, how I made that, I found a, a, a nylon tag. You know when you buy a coat, you get that nylon tag. Mm-hmm. Pull the piece of that off. And then I can see them. I didn't need a photograph. I saw the Leonardo Vinci's version of The Last Supper. So what I did, I started in the middle and I carved this silhouette of Jesus out in the middle. So it's transparent. So I'm cutting, slicing away. It's like peeling a carrot. Right. There's little bits of coming up in the nylon's coming up. I'm cutting it and removing it. And then next to it, I carved all the rest of the disciples, cutting away. And and I did a lady near Jesus because as far as I'm concerned, there is a lady in The Last Supper. So I carved the shape of a lady. So you've got this transparent figure and they're all like a little block uh, of of nylon and the tablecloth's there. So it's been sliced and pulled away. So you slice a nylon and separate it. So what you're doing, you're cutting and Mm. manipulating and and twisting. And So by the time I'd finished, this took me about seven, eight weeks, sometimes longer. Sometimes I work on six at a time. For about nine weeks, 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day, I'll just keep going, turn into a zombie at times. You may see my eyes looking a bit tired because I'm, I'm working on Pied Piper. I'm going to put 22 children in the eye of a needle and the Pied Piper playing oh a flute. Just, just... Right? But they're all going to be diverse, all different colours. So with the last of once I've done the shape, I'll get an eyelash and I'm working between my heartbeat because you have to because your pulse is jumping. So you have one and a half seconds to, to move. So each time I'm cutting away, I'm holding my breath and I'm working between the beats. So I put myself in almost an intensive um, concentration, almost like a meditative state, because if you breathe, mm. it's going to go wrong. So what I do, I take an eyelash as a paintbrush, pluck an eyelash out, and I use that eyelash as a paintbrush, and I start to paint. So you can't stroke, you have to keep touching dabbing because surface tension of the paint can make the heads look bigger 
And if I'm not careful, Jesus' head can look like Humpty Dumpty <laughs> because the pain, it's like a surface tension. It goes, external forces start to interfere with you because you're on this molecular level, you're getting static electricity, all types of stuff. So when you paint Jesus' face on the front, you've got to paint it from the back. If you're not careful, the paint from the back will move around to the front and it'll look completely like somebody else. And each sculpture, if you notice, in the Last Supper, they're all close together. Yeah. So if I'm painting Jesus and he's got a blue top on and then next to him I've got to paint, say, Judas or whatever, if my pulse twitches and it'll go over and then the paint will paint mm. Judas completely different. And then when you get this smudge of microscopic... When you have a microscopic mistake, you can't get rid of it. Yeah. Because, like I said, the external forces and, and it, it's, it's a very big, small problem. It's indeed. a very big, small problem. It's, it sounds like I'm stressing just even hearing this because I'm thinking, I don't even know. I think what's the smallest thing I've ever done? I mean, I, I just literally am not, I, I can't do small things. So I'm just a very big person. So the when you're talking to me, I'm just almost thinking I have not a clue how this it happens. And I now really understand this. You talk about that process. You talk about the 16 hours a day, mm. nine weeks, do what yeah. you're doing. Several at the time. If I work on one, it'll drive me mad. So I have to work on lots of them. I work like my life depends upon it. I work like I have to save somebody's life. I, I don't like doing the work. I don't enjoy it, but I love it when it's finished because I love to see the reaction on people's faces. So that's my pleasure is when it's finished. And that is your, yeah, your reward for what you put in. What you do now is worth a lot of money. And thank goodness it is. You've now spent, you know, we've started this story when you were five years old and you're in your 60s mm -hmm. now. This is a lifetime spent perfecting something mm -hmm. that really mm -hmm. is just extraordinary. And as I said, I've, I've never interviewed anybody like yourself. And, you know, some of your pieces go for 100,000 plus, And this is of course, what it's worth. I was reading an article and you said, well, this is how it works. Say your husband is a multimillionaire who's seen it all and owns a huge yacht and everything money can buy. And then one day you call me and you say, can you do a sculpture made of gold of my husband standing on his yacht and set it into a tiny diamond on the head of a pin? And then at his birthday party, in front of 500 guests, you present it to him under a microscope inside a case with velvet curtains. And he says, what's that? And you say, it's you standing on a yacht. And the wow factor is through the roof. People with money want to say, I have something so small, you'll not believe it. Here's, here's an example. Here's an example, Holly. If I said to you, if it is your birthday... And, you know, you're financially successful. And I said, it's your birthday. And then somebody brought you a box, a gold box. And inside the gold box was some fairies. And the box was about that big. And there's like some little fairies inside the box. Like Pandora's yeah. box, but it wasn't the, the, the bad stuff inside. There were <laughs> fairies and butterflies. and So you give you that box and you go, oh, thank you. And then you say, Harley, come over here. And then... You say what? And there's a microscope. And then you look through the microscope and then you see the same box again in the eye of a needle with fairies flying around it or sitting on the top of the needle, on, on, on the outside of the eye of the needle, and some fairies holding hands doing ringa ringa roses. 
inside the needle and they've got wings and they've got faces, they've got smiles on their faces. Which one's bigger? I'm almost like speechless when you speak. Because that tiny little thing is much bigger than anything you would ever have in your whole life. Yeah. You see what I mean? That's where underestimation comes in. Never, ever underestimate something that you can't see. And that's what it is. So when they see it and it's beautifully presented and the box is made of gold and there's like a gilded box and little flowers coming off the box and it's pure gold, 24 karat gold, that big one doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, no. It doesn't matter. Tell me, I want to ask you before we come to the end of this podcast, you know, people have been just taken on an, an emotional journey listening to your story. And there is so many things. People are going to replay it and replay it because the wisdom that has come from yourself, even recalling all of this, your mother's words, which have blown me away, the few words, but the powerful words. Mm-hmm. When you think about your life and what you're doing, what would you say to that teacher, you know, that past. I mean, I'm, I want to ask, does she know who you are now? <laughs> Sorry, it was the revenge bit that you said. I was like, I really hope she read the papers uh, during that time. But what do you think about that when she sees where, where you, or when anyone, when we all have situations, don't we? I think actually sometimes revenge or whatever that motivation is, is quite a positive thing. You know, it's, I've had it in my life. Absolutely. It spared, you know, pushed me forward when I wanted to give up. When you think about her looking at you, what does it make you feel? Well, if I could be a little voice in a, in a here when I was young, I would say to her, you've made a mistake. Mm. You've just thrown the diamond into the dustbin and it's going to come back to haunt you. Mm. You're going to be like looking into the mirror and what you did bad is going to reflect back on you. How brilliantly summed up. Because my name is Willard Wigan, the greatest micro-artist of all time. Oh, I hope everyone listening, whoever your teacher or the person who doubted you or the ex-husbands or the people who harmed you or whoever those people are, I really hope we're all listening to Willard because, you know, that is it. It's for us to prove the diamond that we are. And I've just enjoyed every second of this conversation. I use the analogy to those who I interview that the journey that we're on, whether we're building a business, building a brand, is like an epic roller coaster. You know, we have these huge highs, but we have so many lows that we don't often, you know, speak about. Can you tell me if you had to describe your biggest low so far on this journey, what it would be? Well, the biggest low was losing myself. I couldn't find me. You know, my mum used to say something to me. If you want something bad enough, you can get it. You know, my mum used to say to me, if I saw something that I wanted, I saw this this girl walking across the road and I says, oh, I like her, I want her. My mum said, never want somebody who you want, want somebody who wants you. 
So I make people want me through what I did. My autism taught me one lesson. People want to see how small and how dynamic my work is. And the tenacity that I have has enabled me to become who I've become. I have delivered a message to the whole world. It's a small message with the biggest impact. The key that you couldn't see that's made of gold has opened the biggest door in the world. So my mother would always say that to me all the time. And she would say, be the best person you can, be the kindest person you can. Just make sure what you have, the message you have, deliver it to people, adults and children alike. You know, it's, there's, there's a saying in Rocky, when you get knocked down, be knocked, like Tyson Fury got knocked down by Deontay Wilder, but Tyson Fury got back up. It's the getting back up, isn't it? It's what you do when you get back up. And when you get back up, then you show the world what it's like when you get back up, when you've been knocked down. You know what I mean? And sometimes people will want you when they see what you're capable of doing. Mm. And it's a defence system. Our body has a defence system within ourselves. We compensate with skills to put other things to one side so that the diamond can be seen mm. because it's hidden, you see. It's called a hidden talent. And, and hidden talent always emerges as the greatest of all time because people disregard things sometimes mm. because they can't see or that they, they don't take time to see. Um, if someone's stuttering, they haven't got time to sit there to listen to what they've got to say, but spend some time and listen to what that person's got to say. Listen to them. Yeah. Never, ever underestimate. And tell me, on the other side of that roller coaster, I mean... We've heard about your life story, so I don't know how you're going to pick one. <laughs> but was it what was your highest moment on that roller coaster? What would you say has been the greatest high? The highest moment is when I, I suppose uh, my MBE and the Queen, and um, you know when I went to Chelsea Flower Show and stole the whole show. I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. I didn't mean to. I just went there and put on a little display of my work. And Birmingham won the gold medal for the fifth year running. Oh, my God. Princess Anne came up to me and told me she's, speci she's come specially to see me. Oh. Now, how nice is that? You know, and you get all the royalty, Beatrix and Eugene, and they all came round my stand because I did a little exhibition and there was a big needle covered in flowers and a few things. And, and, and there I was. And I, that was a great moment for me. And, and also when I received my doctorate at Warwick University, I remember standing on the stage in my gown and I remember how the scarecrow felt in The Wizard of Oz because they gave him a brain <laughs> and they gave me one as well. <laughs> Gosh. So that was a great moment for me. And also, a gentleman by the name of Joe Egan is a boxer. He used to spar with Mike Tyson, big Irish guy, came into my exhibition and he said, I I've never seen anything like it in my life. Mike Tyson couldn't knock me out, but your work did. <laughs> you had a life like this this is unbelievable well when you see joe egan right was sparred with mike tyson mike tyson hit him with everything the kitchen sink the whole lot but never knocked him out but he says my work did so that was a great compliment coming from the fighter so i feel so 
charged mm. with encouragement. Yeah. Charged right up to my eyeballs with encouragement. I look in the mirror and encouragement comes out of my ears, my eyes, my mouth, my <laughs> nose, because people have been giving me so much compliments and, 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 and encouragement. And my work doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to, to the public, the mm. people of the UK, the people of the world. I, I've got an exhibition on now, which is a permanent exhibition. It's called the Birmingham Contemporary Art Gallery, which is which showcasing 25 of my best microscopic sculptures. I have something in there that's going to shock the world when they see it, but I'm not going to say what it is. So I have the exhibition on now, but I'm working on the Pied Piper. I'm going to make people think I'm an alien when I finish that. <laughs> <laughs> you could call me an alien if you want tell, to. But... Tell me, Willard, you have decided just to say some words about to your younger self, because this is normally the point of the podcast where we ask those who have been interviewed just to think about their younger selves and to reflect and maybe give some wise words. And it's that moment also, I mean, I don't know what you would say that you haven't said in this podcast, because I think I've never heard so many profound statements that will stay with me. Would that be possible that you could talk to the young Willard? Yeah, I mean, if I was going to talk to the young Willard, Number one, I'd say to the young Willard, look through a tunnel and at the end of it, have a look at where you're going to end up. Because at the end of it, there's not just a pot of gold, there's a successful journey that you are going to reach. I know, Willard, that you can't read and you can't write, but you've been given a gift by God. God has given you a gift right? Try not to let anybody tell you you cannot be uh, what you're going to become because you are going to be the greatest. And the word the greatest is a good word to use to encourage people. Uh, Cassius Clay used to say, I am the greatest while he was boxing and he became that. People thought it was a boast, but it's, it's just a motivation to say, I am the best. Tyson Fury says, I am the best. I will win. So what I'm saying to you, Willard, is that you are going to be the best. You are the bestest. You are going to make the world see these little sculptures that you're making, how big you're going to become. I want you to ignore what the teacher says because you have a condition that can't be changed. But that condition, flip over the coin and then you're going to see the glory. And not only that, you are a diamond. And that diamond was in the dustbin, but it's going to come out. And when it comes out, they won't see anything as bright as how you're going to shine because you are underestimation. You are the greatest micro artist of all time. You are the best. You will create the smallest sculptures ever made by man, by hand, not by machine. You are the best. Mm. And my head will be straight towards that tunnel. Don't look outside the tunnel follow it and at the end you'll see something that says the dream and that's what you're going to do you're going to make your dream a reality 
You are the best. Nobody can beat you. You are the best. That's what I'd say to myself. I think about that five-year-old in the shed making his ant homes so that the ants were safe and the ants were cared for and the little ants had places to go. And I look at the man that you are and this huge heart that you obviously have. Thank you. And your glorious mother, who must be just with little words, still so proud of you, looking down at you with a few, with a probably a slight smile, but with this huge pride burning in her chest. And to everybody who's listened today, it's been extraordinary. It will be with me till the day I go. And I just, um, I'm just so glad that you exist. That's all I can say. I, I'm, you know, it's extraordinary. Thank you. And, and the thing is, uh, Ollie, uh, the bad news is I'm getting greater. Yeah, well. <laughs> People haven't seen the best of me yet because talking to you has enlightened me as well. You know, being able to share my story has made me realise how much love is out there for my yeah. work and for people to appreciate me and know the real me because uh, you're the only person that's really bought out most of me because mm. some of it was just in reserve but you brought out a lot of me and I you know and I hope people can be inspired by what they've heard yeah and, and believe in themselves and the word can't doesn't exist mm. but there are people that, are, that can do things in this world that people never believe you're going to kill me off, honestly. I, I've got to do a whole day's work and yet I just want to cry my eyes out at this point in time. <laughs> You've just inspired me to the point that I cannot even cope with it all. Oh, thank you. Everyone go and see your exhibition. Please don't you be sad or happy tears, whatever those are, because... To, Sorry. to crikey, to crikey, I've just never experienced anything like it and I feel so frigging honoured. Um, we're going to take away your words. We're going to remember mm. that boy. We're going to think about our tunnel. You've articulated creativity in a way that no one I've ever spoken to has done that. And um, your eloquence in how you describe things is nothing short of a miracle. Thank you. And how do you look so frigging good at 60? What are you, 60? 64, I reckon. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's unfair. Do you know what I mean? That's unfair. You can't have a gift like you and get to look like you as well at 64 because I think you look like you've got another... 50 years. I think it's because I keep holding my breath, you know. I think it's that. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know? <laughs> you're like, you're like, and yes, exactly. Your cells aren't renewing because you're holding your breath for so long. It could be something like that. I mean, I don't quite know what it is, really. I think it's because I don't worry about much things. I don't allow things to worry me too much, you know what I mean? Mm. See, what it is, uh, Ali, I have this tunnel vision and I just believe everything's going to be good. You know what I mean? During lockdown, I just got my head down and just started create work, better work. Mm. So, you know, my mum would say, never get bitter, get better. What, what, what was she eating? <laughs> she could come out with such wisdom. I mean, it's ridiculous. I've never just, geez, you know. She'd say all things, and, but if you didn't behave yourself and you didn't listen, yeah, she'd I say, if your ears don't hear it, your backside's going to feel it. <laughs> oh, God. 
<laughs> Willard, I'm going to remember this moment. I hope one day we're going to meet in person. Yeah, I we am, can. Come um, to my exhibition, Holly. I'd love to meet you I in person. I would love, love, love. I'd like to say to the listeners, my exhibition is there permanently. It's at the Birmingham Contemporary Art Gallery. It's a beautiful building, big glass building. And I've got 25 microscopes there, beautifully made microscopes. And I'd just like to give a big shout out to a gentleman by the name of Mike, Mike, Mike Haynes, who suffered two heart attacks, suffered cancer, suffered everything else, went to heaven. Jesus told him it wasn't his time yet, and he came back down, and he's still living, and he's a tremendous person. I am really, really um, happy with my journey, and it's still continuing. They have not seen nothing yet, because my work is still too big, as far as I'm concerned. That's my mother's words. The best interview, Willard. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you for inspiring us. And I will certainly see you at your exhibition. Thank you, Holly. God bless. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.